0: Deck 78.
1: And welcome back to another episode of Inglorious Trekspers Presents Deck 78. I'm Is that the Marty full name Altman. of it now? I, I keep <laughs> changing it. I know. I still haven't quite found the template yet. I, I'll get there. I'll get there eventually. So uh, I, I just haven't landed on an introduction that I've fallen in love with for this yet. So, uh, I'll keep Welcome to Deck
2: 78, out. the deck that doesn't exist, yeah. only in your mind, where anything can happen.
1: You're on Deck 78. You always jump the introduction. You always you just assume people know who you are. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm here, of course, with uh, my lovely co-host, Darren Dockerman, and the, the voice you just heard was Ashley Edward Miller. Um, and uh, we're, we're very excited today. Uh, we're joined by editor, writer, director, and now author... Uh, Alan Holtzman. Alan is the author of the new book Cellulite Wars The Making of Battle Beyond the Stars the incredibly true story of an epic sci-fi movie produced on a not so epic budget and uh, (laughs) he's following that up with a a journal about the making of um, his film originally called Mutant but you may know it better as Forbidden World uh, celebrating its 40th anniversary this year Um, and uh, I have to say to Alan Why is it that we do podcasts and tens of thousands of people are going to be tuning in to listen to uh, Battle Beyond the Stars? What we really should be talking about is, you know, Alan's Emmy Award winner as a director and editor for Survivors of the Holocaust. And we'd probably get, unfortunately, like six people to listen to that. But we talk about the dopey Battle Beyond the Stars, no offense, and people could not come to the podcast fast enough. So uh, (laughs) anyway, welcome, Alan Holtzman.
3: So let me talk a little bit about Sur- Survivors of the Holocaust. <laughs> because it, I, I actually, you know, I, 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 my switch from features to do- documentaries is an interesting one because I came with the commitment not to use a narrator because I wanted to, editing to be the main art- artistic key. Plus, I wanted to build characters as if in a movie so people could identify with the documentary and actually participate or have feelings as an audience would in a feature film. In order to do that, you have to keep them engaged all the time. Uh, But what I did, and I had to cut, make the first cut on spec, because no one could believe that I could do a a documentary on the level for Spielberg of the Holocaust without a narrator. And that's a constant search for the heart of the movie. And, And music becomes your narrative guide. And, I, I, and, um, and, and the music needs to be non-depressing. It needs to have heart, and because the, the, the reason why you need to feel inspired during a tragic documentary is to celebrate or feel for the storytellers. And part of that, and they are the characters in the movie. So the fact that they survived is inspirational. And I try to have the music reflect that in a positive way. And I discovered that technique working on the Native Americans, when Robbie Robertson was doing the score. And I went, but the, when I, I came on, I was the third or, or fourth editor really, or third probably, but I, and I, they needed a new approach. And it was to take out the narrator and I was listening to Robbie's music and it was really depressing. And it matched what people were talking about because the tragedies are really severe. But then I discovered when I went to visit him in his studio, and he must've had a hundred guitars, it was across from the New Art Theater um, and, of course, I love Rob, Rob because I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan from 15 on, and, and, um, and, and, but Robby was making an album, and the music he had for the album was contemporary, but it had a traditional source, and I absolutely loved the music, so I asked him to take out the lyrics and just give me the music, and that's how I scored the movie, how, how, how I scored the series.
1: Speaking of great documentaries, and this has nothing to do with you, but uh, I, that uh, we were brothers about the history of the band, uh, which I think premiered on Netflix or Hulu or something in the last year, is a terrific documentary. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love that. Uh, Robbie's such an interesting, an interesting He's guy. That's 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 real. That's really cool. But don't worry, we're gonna get the candy stripe <laughs> soon, listeners. Um, <laughs> you know, and,
3: and I also. So uh, do you, do you, you want know, to sing I, the title song? You remember the <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> best lyrics ever written? Talk about Robbie Robertson. Okay, it goes like this, and I'm not a singer, but my wife is. I want a bang, bang a candy striped nurse. I want a bang, bang a candy striped nurse. I want, and it doesn't change. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a deeply healthy nation, too. <laughs> Julie <laughs> sprung for an- animation. It was Julie Corman's no, first I miss movie. I the 70s. Huh. That
1: was Julie's first movie working with Roger. Yeah, that's, that's it. Well, we'll get to we'll get to the uh, the Corman factory in uh, New World. It and, wasn't uh, a factory;
3: it was a home. It was a home. Okay.
1: Yeah, <laughs> really, it wasn't. You, a apparently, home. you didn't read your book. You didn't read <laughs> uh, your book, Grommel. A so, home for uh,
0: wayward children.
1: Yes, so that's I, uh, it. And it <laughs> we also didn't didn't mention, of course, that you were one of the editors who worked on uh, uh, Rod Roddenberry's Trek Nation.
3: Yes. Uh, so and uh, We'll have to, we'll have I to love, circle back to I, I really just fell in love with Gene Roddenberry, And and I just got to, there was so much on, on his, that's been archived of his speeches, which I just thought were totally extraordinary. But then discovering well, so much know, about him. Pardon?
0: You, you realize, of course, that uh, many of uh, <laughs> Gene's speeches were uh, not uh, extemporaneous at all, but he had practice them in front of uh mirrors quite a lot and i'm uh, sure and, and
3: they're, just, <laughs> they're, they're so well written well they're, they're so well written that it has to be i,
0: written. I, to- yeah. I totally agree
3: yeah, yeah.
1: No, no he 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 It was a remarkable philosophy and uh you weren't a star trek fan when when you uh and i know they, they they were really trying to wrestle that beast to the ground for a while in fact we're talking to rod for the show soon and I know that was a really important thing for him, that uh, it was a chance for him to sort of discover, you know, he didn't know much about Star Trek. And this was a way for him to really uh, understand his father and, you know, uh, posthumously rediscover his, his father and why Star Trek meant so much to people. And really it was a sort of a, a noble undertaking.
3: Yeah, his father had one thing that I'm not sure if anyone has talked to me about it. But you know, when when you have a child, and we have two, and we do this with, with our kids, that you know they, the, the touch of skin to skin is really important to a, to a ba- baby. So um, Gene had writers meetings at Coolside at his house, and he was there naked with Rob, and he insisted that everyone be naked. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we we we
0: heard those stories. You I, know I hear yeah. that story and I ain't no band
2: leader. I, I feel like I feel like he brought was just a convenient excuse. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, there's a baby, so uh, everybody get naked. And you know, in the hot tub, yeah. babies love hot tubs and yeah. scotch. Baby 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 loves scotch.
0: <laughs> the, the, Ashley, the the human body is nothing to be uh, frightened of, and uh, we should uh, all uh, uh, laud our uh, our individual uh, sexuality and nakedness whenever we can. That's
2: why God
3: invented mirrors. That's correct,
1: and and showers. <laughs> so, Ashley, season four of uh, Dota Dragons Blood, uh, you got a new idea for the writers' room now?
2: Exactly, everybody gets
1: naked, but but everybody will just be drawn. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Well, then it won't be much different than the show, right? That's right. So, uh, I actually anyway. did a documentary
3: on my own with the TV Academy that's ever come out, and I love to show it to you guys. It was on Sheldon Leonard, and he's the one who invented the writers' room yeah. because he was doing uh, the Danny Thomas show at the same time he was doing the Dick Van Dyke show. He invented he invented the first uh, uh, spinoff too with Gomer. Oh, uh, the Andy Griffith well, show. He was doing those at the same time, plus the spinoff to Andy Griffith with Gomer Pyle. So that's how why he made the writer producer the creative one in charge of each show. Didn't
0: they have Didn't they have a writers' room on your show of shows?
3: Not yeah, for comedy, the way – because you know, he made the writer – the show of shows, for, you know, Caesar was in charge. So yeah. Sheldon wasn't in charge. He named the producer, who was right, the writer, right. in charge. And he could go from place to place. Right. And, but we're so uh, – I'll, I'll show he organized you. how – you know, this was a dramatic, you know, comedy thing. So it was, rather than skits, it had to make sense. So, you know, right. and, and he would um, – the schedule that they went on in terms of when they had the first reading, when they bring the actors in to rehearse, et cetera, the same thing is done now. It it hasn't changed, but he never gets the credit for it.
1: Well, you know what else he doesn't get enough credit for? He was super pioneering in terms of with I Spy. Everybody talks, obviously, about the interracial pairing of Bill Cosby and Robert Culp, but uh, from a TV perspective, from people like us who, who make TV, what was amazing about that show was they actually, instead of shooting on a back lot, they traveled around the world and shot internationally.
3: It was so ahead of its
1: time, where they would literally know, go he, to other he countries actually and actually
3: collab- He collaborated with a student at USC who came to him and said, you need to think outside the box. And that's how Cinemobile was in- invented. They invented it. They put a truck inside an airplane. So all they had to do, he said, if you're going to go around the world shooting, you don't want to rent. Because you're going to get the worst equipment. You got to bring your own, and they put it all. They took the equipment with with them, and then Sheldon hired himself to be second unit, so he and his wife could have a bit vacation and travel. <laughs>
1: nice. He was no dummy, that Sheldon Leonard, no, and also no. he was a great heavy before he was an actor. Before I, he became yeah, a, that's how he he got he, Well, he he,
0: he threw Jimmy Stewart out of his bar.
1: <laughs> I and and you've done <laughs> a bunch but, but, of. Maybe, um, maybe. We've got to see the I, Sheldon Leonard documentary.
3: Yeah, I, I also did a, a documentary about Frank Capra um, that's based on the archive from, that I got rescued from a closet at AFI a- from the Harold Lloyd Seminars from the time that I was a student there. And um, mm-hmm. it was Frank Cap- Capra at the end of his c- career after he had ri- written his a- a- autobiography. Bi- and he gives the most mm-hmm. most impassioned, beautiful, talk about how movie is magic, but, it, you, for, but for a movie, you can't, it can't be a religious statement. It can't be a p- political statement. It has to be a human statement. And, but one thing he discovered early on in his career, that when he at his first cut, he was, it, it worked in the editing room, and then he put it in front of an audience, and, and it was slow. It wasn't moving fast enough. So that's when he invented the style of people talking fast. So all the 40s movies have people talking fast it came from Frank Capra.
1: Yeah, Capra uh, Capra was a, a remarkable director and obviously a remarkable man when you you get into his trial what he did during World War II and obviously part of that that group but 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 anyway we're here to talk about um a film that that, and again i'll say less remarkable Uh, it's a fascinating it's a subject of much fascination to to genre aficionados because of course you know after the success of Star Wars, the incredible success of Star Wars. There were so many imitators. Uh, there were, you know, movies uh, like Message from Space, which were Japanese imports that were quickly dubbed. There's movies like Starship Invasions. Obviously, some would say Battlestar Galactica was. Uh, uh, but but really, what's amazing is uh, that this was Roger Cor- Roger Corbin made Battle Beyond the Stars, which was his most expensive movie ever at the time. Spent a huge amount of money in the It's, it's uh, for still his, his most studio. expensive movie.
3: It hasn't been so bad. It's his biggest yeah, movie which is ever. Which
1: incredible. After all this time and with inflation, it's still the most expensive. But I, I want to take a step back because, of course, your road to getting to Battle Beyond the Stars is, is so interesting uh, in terms of some of the cutting you did for him, how you left New World, uh, and then how you ended up getting roped back in. And, of course, what's so great about the book is how candid you are because you know we've all read the starlog you know this is going to be the next star wars it's so great and you know all the you know the interviews with jimmy and you know that's all fine and good but we you know, we've all seen the movie so i the fact is i love you know just how candid and honest you are about what was really going on there you know because everyone know you know anyone who cares about the, movies and genre. They know the legend, you know, print the legend with Roger, which is great. He gave all these people these opportunities to uh, write and produce, direct, to star, and you know, Nicholson, Bogdanovich. I mean, the list goes on and on. But, you know, you kind of talk about how the sausage was made and the less glamorous part. And that's not a part that a lot of people really talk about. They say, oh, you know, Roger gave me my start, right? That's usually what you hear. But you really dive into this whole thing, which is so so interesting i mean that's what i really love about the book and uh you know, especially in this day and age when movie coverage is so tightly controlled by publicists and everything's the greatest thing since sliced bread um you, you know you, you talk about like you're very fond of the movie you had this really great experience but you know in a way but it was hard and it was awful and it was messed up so let, let's maybe talk a little bit about you know kind of your road to battle beyond the stars before we get to that movie
3: Uh, I was a student at AFI, and I uh, didn't have enough money for to last my first year, and so I needed a job, and Julie Corman uh, had offered Candy Strike Nurses to a classmate of mine. There was a whole snobbishness between AFI and Corman. Students at AFI thought that Corman was the lowest of the low, and people at Corman thought people at AFI were the biggest jerks in the world so what I jumped think it's at Sam the, uh, Markov? <laughs>
2: well, everybody was 50% right <laughs> <laughs> I,
3: I, I actually cut Sam Markov's first independent movie uh, from Arkov Inter, International Final Terror we can talk about that later but um, <laughs> so uh, and I, I was a severe stutter so uh, luckily at AFI they accepted stutterers in each of the two years before mine so it was established that stutterers can be good filmmakers. Uh, and, um, and so I, I jumped at the job. And Julie, you know, she liked my movie. I showed her a, sh- a short that I cut, and I actually cut the feature that stars Richard Gere in John Abnett's first movie that he's never let out called Com- Confusion's Circle. And I also had cut um, a, a, a compilation of all the Eastern Airlines commercials, which was uh, aired after Nixon's. I hate it. His, after his inauguration, that was narrated by Orson Welles, so I had some, you know, cr- credentials, and um, uh, and then uh, my second year I was also out of money after shooting my movie and which was Skin, based on a short story by Raw Dahl. and I uh, Julie asked me to cut her se- second film, which was directed by Jonathan Demme, C- Crazy Mama, and I. Uh, after running Crazy Mama, I'd finished my movie and Roger asked me to cut down the Peter O'Toole movie that he just bought and we went in the theater and I showed him what I did. And then I screened my movie for him at AFI and he only fell asleep once during it. And I reached over and <laughs> raised the sound and woke him up. <laughs> I was... And we walked outside, and I was carrying my film candle at Sunset Boulevard and I said, Roger, can I do, can I do? And he said, thank you very much Alan. I'll see you later. And he walked away, and I, and I couldn't even get the word direct out. So I figured that bridge was just burned forever. And uh, uh, John Abnet was working for Fred Wantral, and they were doing uh, that's entertainment for animals, and it wound up having three titles: It's Showtime, uh, the Wonderful World of Those Kooky Crazy Animals, and uh, I forget what the third one was. But um, and uh, and. Uh, uh, so I, I did that for him, and then I cut two movies in Asia for him. One was with uh, Susan Sarandon and Joe Don Baker called Checker Flag or Crash. Another with producer Andre Morgan, who also worked with Fred, in Hong Kong, and I sh- cut at Raymond Chow Studios. Uh, and, um, uh, and that was Amsterdam Kill with Robert Mitchum. We shot in Amsterdam, too. And I, cutting in Amsterdam... They had, they had the editing room next to a women's prison that I never got to see, but it was next door to it. And they had teat, wooden, teat. it was sort of steam back, and they had wooden flats slats, and grass growing up. Wow! <laughs> but in Hong Kong it was great because they had, you know, even though they made the electronics, they never used them. They had to use it for export, so they had no electronics for their films. So they cut all their films in a camera, and then and they shot in wow. 35. They did, did audio afterwards in 17-and-a-half-millimeter full coat. Uh, but it, whether it was an action scene or a dialogue scene, it was freeze, don't change the light, you move around the other side, take the other angle, and, and so then he would just cut out the flash frames wow. You wouldn't even use the machine. And I think that's why there was such an explosion of, of freedom of editing in Hong Kong mo- action movies, because suddenly all these people who had to grow up pre-visualizing movies now had the freedom to edit and they just went wild with it. Who cares about rules? You know? And, um, so anyway, um, I, I, I did my movies for Fred and then, but I was tired of having, you know, doing all this creative work to save, I mean, chapter three of my book is called turning shit into mediocrity. And, and that's what I thought I was doing, you know? And, uh, so I really wanted to have a good movie. And, I, and Coppola was like the star with zo, zo, Zoetrope. And Vim so, and, and ben Benders, whose work I love, was doing, going to do Hammett. So I wrote Roger a letter. I didn't call him because of my stuttering, but I wrote him a letter asking him to recommend me. And he calls back and he says, I feel awkward not having talked to Francis in the last three or four months, but uh, I'm making my biggest movie ever. Will you edit it? and uh, he told me what it was that he said it's a it's a combination of star wars and seven samurai and you know of course i was interested and i went in and negotiated him up from 600 a week to 650 a week and i was starting but i i knew what trouble i was getting into and i knew that everything goes wrong in the korman movie because everything everybody's out to get the other guy and and the only way to prove yourself as a director is to be smarter than the person you're, you're working for. And and I didn't—I wanted to be above the political fray. I wasn't interested in anything other than having a good movie. And I was really influenced as a kid by the K-mutiny and the journal that the Ensign kept during it in, in in terms of trying to see what the best decision for the next day is, how to keep the ship from mm-hmm. mutiny, first of all, and then how to survive. And, and so I thought that if I kept a journal, I would, um, I, I could, I could, uh, you know, maintain a perspective on that. And I wrote every single night, no matter what time it was. A lot of the entries are at midnight or 2 a.m. But uh, I didn't, I didn't take away from any work time. Uh, and I, yeah. I, uh, and I, and I roller skated then, so I got my exercise going to and pro from work.
0: Wow. That, you know, the, the process of, uh, of doing that show, you know, specifically for Corman, must have been interesting because I can't imagine that they would have shot a ton of footage. Uh, his schedules were fairly short, or, or was that uh, not the case?
3: It was a problem with the footage every day, a lot because of the staginess of it. Uh, Jimmy Murakami was the director, and he had done second unit for Roger before, but he, he was basically an animator, and he had everything storyboarded, and he shot the storyboards, and there was hardly any movement. And and um, and there there was never a lot of co- co- coverage. In fact, once Jimmy, there was a conference with six people, and he didn't shoot every. He didn't shoot this one guy, but a major line. Oh my goodness! And I said, Jimmy, you got to go back and do a pickup. He says, No, I don't like that guy. You know, it's like, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well,
3: uh, no. Every day was a nightmare of da- da- dailies, and um, uh, and I spent a lot of time. I had a s- second editor, and he gave into the footage. You know, I gave him lecture after le- lecture of you can't let this film be bad. You have to find a way to no. make something special out of it. And yeah, even if this, was just yeah. Yeah. totally flat and like just couldn't etc. Make a, a rhythmic thing out of it. You know, do something mathematical, invent something. And there was something that I, I, um, when I was editing for Roger, Joe Dante and Alan Arkish uh, were cutting trailers then. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you uh, do sound, you need fill in 35 millimeter to go, because you have to have an effects reel and a music reel and you have spaces. So you got to fill it with fill. So the labs give you the reels for very cheap for a penny a foot of films that, that, or rejects in terms of the color. And sometimes great movies would come in and they, they had what was called the Dante Arkish Memorial Library, which were reels of film that were great <laughs> from different movies. And, uh, and they had the, the, the bridge explosion in The Wild Bunch. Right. Um, and, uh, and I studied it. And I saw that there were like four frames of clear And then with any gunshot or any explosion, you always get a clear frame. Some frame is whited out because of the amount of light. It it always happens. And so I took white frames and extended all the gunshots and all the explosions and all the laser shots, et cetera. I made it bigger. And then there was one point where the Kelvin, which they, they like— are exposed to explode because they've generated too much heat to stop the tanks right. from coming in. And John sales wrote a brilliant script. I just loved it. And he's just so funny. And, and but, um, uh, uh, and it came in as two shots, one medium and one wide where a couple sparks go up and they fall. You now, what are you supposed to do with that? You know? Yeah. And as a stutterer, you know, I, I taught myself editing. Uh, and, um, and I was a school projectionist at Bennington College where I was a drama fellow because they needed male actors. When all, it was an all-girls school then, and I had the job as a school pro- projectionist, so I had the splicer and, and, and leader. You know, In case I had breaks, I could put leader at the beginning and end, etc., sure. or fill in a shot. So I had black leader and white leader, and the Beatles' White Album came out, and so I spent a winter work term uh, uh, in, a, in a room with a projector and splicer and, and cut subliminal editing to the Beatles' white album. Nice. Not, I didn't have it in a sync machine, but I would project it and play the album just see patterns. So I, oh, I, had, cool. I was used to subliminal editing. I looked for ways to get that in. And, and so with the Kelvin, I just did back and forth, and with the white frames, I could extend it and just flash back for, you know, two seconds and make something out of it with a big noise. Yeah. So you'll see extended flashes all through battle.
1: Because you had a problem with visual effects being special? delivered to you. They very, you know, you had a problem with special effects being delivered to you on time and being anything usable. That they were their own little fiefdom over there.
3: That problem happened before I even cut a frame. Uh, uh, Chuck Kaminsky, who's gone on to have a brilliant career with Jim Cap Cameron, you know, he was at that time, you know. The, the ethos was special effects are budgeted for so much money, but it's going to go over budget. It's going to take longer. It's going to develop, and so you know Chuck knew how to play that game. And every you know, it's it's how you get more money out of your producer, which is not an unethical goal, you know. Right. But you know, but he wanted to have a good movie as well, and he was just as passionate as I was, but in a different. You know, we were, he came to me the first day I arrived on Roller Skates and I was taking them off and I was talking to the uh, assistant, the special effects editor. Actually, I went over there to see if she had any flares, any, well, all the, I wanted to know what they were throwing out because I needed to help with some explosion to make it interesting. Right. And, and Chuck comes in and says, you guys in live action aren't going to touch a frame of our footage. I'm tired of being screwed over by you guys. And he went on and on about how, you know, so I, I said, look, you know, I, I'm the editor. You know, at, one, at some point you're going to have to face me. and I'm going to have to take it. And <laughs> do it you know, so you may as well do it now. Uh, and so for Roger, in terms of the schedule, he would call every morning to see how many shots were done the day before. So Chuck kept the numbers up. So you had so many flybys. And I was seeing the flybys, but John Sales had written you know, complicated, you know, action with two or three ships right. in a shot and things happen and I wasn't seeing that. And at, at the screenings, I refused to cut in slugs. One reason, because I, I stuttered and I didn't want to read slugs. <laughs> you know, it's <That's> nothing <laughs> like in a movie going, shot a <laughs> and it's already gone by, you know? <laughs> uh, so I wanted to protect myself with that, plus, but I did have a theory, which is like I'm only going to I'm going to go with what I have and I'll keep improving it as I go. But I'm not going to change change. I'm going to go with I'm going to make it at work. So I concentrated yeah. on making the characters work and it was a creative thing. And I and, and so I could have a space battle with no laser shots, just the characters going back and forth and using the inserts from the ship, et cetera. And then when I would get the shot, I would put put it in.
0: Yeah, that uh, it could and, only get it, it could only yeah. get better that way.
3: Or, or worse, because uh, I lost that battle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the second editor uh, became the first editor, or an e- editor, as Roger said, an, edit, uh, an editor on equal terms, but I had the advantage or something like that, you know, like crazy. But I had to give in to it. So he put in all the slugs, and it was like hundred and thirty, thirteen slugs or something like that. Yeah. And he has perfect diction, you know, and and, and, um, and, and so he read every shot in time and like really, really well done. And everyone left the screen and said, Boy, this movie is so exciting. And I said, <laughs> What the? <You> know?
2: <laughs> but it is. I mean the story of this this movie that we're I think almost dancing around. And look, you know, here on the Lorax and I'm speaking for the trees, right? By that I mean like the people who are who are who are at home and listening to this podcast, right? The the thing that I think is most exciting about this film, other than the fact that it works as well as it works, you know, on the budget that Roger Corman is is working with, right? Is the names that you are just casually dropping, right? It's Joe Dante and Jim Cameron and John Sayles wrote a brilliant script, right? And you've got James Horner writing the score, you know, and like somewhere in the background, there's like Gail Ann Hurd, who's like doing production management. And you've got like Catherine Bigelow, I'm sure is off somewhere. It is a slugger's row that doesn't even know that it's a slugger's row working on this film, putting this thing together. And it's funny, I, I actually, I rewatched it today. Uh, and it just, first of all, it it looks great. And, um, and what you were talking about, just focusing the, the edit on the characters, I think just works like gangbusters, right? Like, um, you know, not, not all of the effect shots are like, they're, they're, we're not. it's not Star Wars. It's like, obviously, I think Roger wanted it to be Star Wars, but there are budgetary limitations that I think that the way that the movie is put together, um, you know, the, the raw talent that exists behind the camera Uh, really just elevates that material and makes it so much fun and so exciting. And, and to me, it's like, I watched that film and all I can think is who the hell needs USC or UCLA, right? Like when Roger Corman is just
0: turning you guys out and just saying, here, here
2: world, here you go. Here's my gift to you.
0: Well, Roger picked uh, handpicked people from USC and UCLA too. Uh, well you know, yeah so it, it was it was a big uh it was a big boiling pot
3: Ju- Ju- julie got the director for candy stripe nurses from U- ucla
1: mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you, you know you talk a, a lot about a great
3: you, story you... With that too that, that i have to tell um, go one, ahead, roger does three and, uh roger always has three plots to his nurse movies or student teacher movies because with three stories you can be a little unpredictable and as soon as one gets boring you can cut to the other and with three, you don't, you, you can always mess, mix up the uh, pro- progression. And um, and he, he loves co- coverage so he can control it in the editing room and a- Alan Hollib was the director and writer, shot one of the themes in Candace Reelson, who was Roger's main star in those days uh, is one of the candy strippers and she's trying to help the rock star Owen Bowles get it up and um, uh, she succeeds, and Owen Bowles makes love to her and his two go-go dancers at the end, but it's only shot with one wide angle, and he never takes his pants off, so he's dry-humping the girls. Um, <laughs> and so Roger calls the director... That's like documentary title. Roger calls the director back into the room, and his name is Alan, and he says, Alan, I don't know where... This is after the last note section. I don't know where you plan to go to from here or what you plan to do, but I want you to remember one thing. When a man fucks, he takes his pants off. So when I gave me my break after battle, um, one was to do a second unit on a car movie that Gale and Her produced, actually, uh, Smokey Bites the Dust, or Beats right. the Dust, or whatever it is, um, that, yeah. that Chuck Griffith uh, directed. And Chuck wrote Little Shop of Horrors and Bucket of Blood and all yeah. that. Um, uh, and the next was to do additional scenes for a kung fu movie, so I wrote this scene, Raja wanted me to do two scenes so I could use them in the trailer and spice up the movie, etc., so I wrote an action scene where this woman takes off, it, it has a fight scene, and it's actually in the lumber yard, and you go through all the lumber yard, and she loses one article of clothing every time they have a skirmish, and then the other scene I wrote was when, there's, when she takes off her, her, her boyfriend's pants with kung fu knives, <laughs> <laughs> and I read the yes. scene to Roger on the phone, and he goes, Alan, this just brilliant, it's brilliant. Uh, but, getting back to, <laughs> but getting back to battle for James Horner, he was amazing because he was using Prokofiev as his inspiration, and Roger gave him 20,000 for the score, and he used it all to hire the London Symphony to do the score. And he had 20 orchestra members to do that. And we work on the movieola. And, you know, you take your timings. Now, I was his music editor. And so he, and he just didn't, he didn't want just, he wants the exact frame of everything, every hit and beginning and end. And, and, he, and he wouldn't trust just stopping the movieola. I had to go up one number and then back to, and then back to the center. And he got the, and he hit every frame exactly. I mean, you look at that movie and you see it so much is helped by the music. It's phenomenal. Oh, yeah.
0: Absolutely.
2: And just, then
3: look at Star Trek again today. Compare the two scores. It's the same score and it's Star Trek. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Well, and it's also yeah. the same one as Aliens. But it's like the thing that's, again, as you said, like what's brilliant about that score is that um, it, it does like hit everything perfectly. Um, yeah. and it's such a difficult thing to do, and you require a composer who has just a, a very exacting sense of timing and drama and either like a great relationship with the with the director or just you know a, a very natural sense of how these things work. But that score really carries. Um, the emotion of that film and it really like helps out with like with with the transitions and just makes everything so seamless it even absolutely. makes the special effects feel better it's yeah, uh it makes, it's it's pretty it amazing. makes it
3: less expensive yeah yeah, yeah but absolutely. but imagine me and and we got along great you know then he comes to um i'm screening my first cut of mutant uh in roger's office and he's not there and so it's like and, and Jamie came late. We, we called him Jamie then. Yeah. Uh, and and he came at the sequence where Tracy, the girl, is running from the mutant in the hallway while Cal, the scientist who has cancer, is getting the cancer taken out of him with a mat knife and pulling the tumor out by hand. And so there's this, this chorus of screams that goes on. And I wouldn't let him come in the movie then because I wanted him to see it from the beginning. But But secretly, I didn't want him to do the score, because I wanted my wife to do the score, because I wanted a punk New Wave score, and I wanted rock and roll, not rock and roll, but I wanted a New Wave electronic score. And so I had to say no to to James (laughs) Horner.
1: Well, his consolation prize was he got to do Uh, Aliens. It it, it didn't hurt his career. Uh, he didn't do <laughs> Forbidden World mutant, but he got to do aliens. So the, you know, there you there you go. And um, but uh, I got I got to ask you because I know you talk about obviously you didn't like to go to set. Um, uh, you know, obviously you know Jimmy and you didn't have the greatest relationship at first. But did the cast ever come to the edit bay or want to see dailies? Did you have any dealings with Papard or
3: or? Uh, R- I, I no, there, or... there was never there was never time for cast to come in. They never came to the editing room. But, uh, but I I, and I had Bob Kaiser go to the set to show up. But I, I didn't like going to the set because I I knew everything about everyone, and and I knew all their details. I like all the blonde actresses always move their head before they talked. Right. And I had a, I had to cut it. I couldn't, I could never leave that in. It was a big headache, you know. So I had things about all the actors that I didn't let had all I, their idiosyncrasies. I just didn't want a relationship. I wanted to just be me in the footage. And like, I, I read, you know, the, the script once, and then I didn't read it again the entire time because I just wanted the film to speak to me. I didn't want the script. I didn't want to like yeah. make the film work to the script. I wanted the film to be what it could be. And there's the movie. That's what I'm stuck with. There I go. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I didn't really have time to go and you know smooth and kibitz, and but Jimmy and I, we, we I mean there was one talk, and it's, this is in the book where, you know, it's the the, the editors weren't invited to, to the crew party, and uh, finally we found out, and then we got invited, and because uh, we we weren't looked at by the uh, uh, by Jimmy's assistant as being part of the production. Uh, which is a laugh. Um, but anyway, we, we go there, and he gives me this long lecture about how, you know, so it's important for the editing to be, you know, this, that, and the other, and pulling it you all know, then. I'm waiting for him to say you've done it. And he goes, and you haven't done any of that. You're cutting for Roger. You're not cutting for the emotion. And, you know, he was talking honestly, but, you know, when you're there on the set and it's live, everything seems to work you know, but you're not looking at what the shot is. If the camera's not moving, who cares how good it is? You know, it's a stage show, and it was really stagey, and I argued a lot about moving the camera. And, you know, I taught at SC editing for 12 years, and, uh, and, uh, and I noticed the most frustrating thing with the students was that they had trouble, uh, and this is not about SC, but just students, they were afraid to move the camera and the actor at the same time you know, it messes up the lighting. It's just, it's just, and I see all these people, they don't have a background in theater.
0: Well, it's hard. You know, in (laughs) theater, you have
3: to move people to keep it interesting. Yeah. And I wish, and it doesn't, it's not expensive, and I have a background in theater, you know, and I was a theater director and a theater actor, et cetera. And so, you know, you deal with subtext and movement all the time, and and they were afraid of that. And Jimmy was really so, but but the cameraman wasn't moving the camera. So but finally they got this new invention that had the camera on these springs like a dentist chair, and they used that and then started to move. And then, mm-hmm. so I, I mentioned this in the book. They finally got my point, you know. And I, I would send criticisms back to the set through Marianne. So. Mary Ann Fisher, who was the producer. So I was not a popular guy, but I thought it was my role, to be honest. You know?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I, mean yeah. I,
3: I really didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't smile. I didn't, like, have a good time.
0: If the I the director
3: go out to drinks with anyone. You know, I was all business. and you were all the enemy fun.
0: That's right. If, look, if, 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 the director, if the director doesn't like the editing, then he has himself to blame. Because uh, that's the that's the problem. If you don't if you don't shoot something that can be cut together well, then uh, well, there's I, I no, there's in no the second week around. of
3: a shoot, usually the director wants to fire the editor if the producers hired him. And <laughs> that happened on all my Corman movies. The director always wanted to get rid of me. Uh, you know, I had a problem with uh, jo- jo- Jonathan Demme, who's a fantastic, amazing, great director. Yeah. But it, the, for this particular one, you know, he was hired two weeks before it started. Um, uh, because the director was originally hired, had a dental appointment, missed the ca- casting se- session and Julie fired her. And so, and, and but it was, it, it was stagey, you know? It, and so I had to, you know, it may have been funny on the set, but it's still coming out as one shot, it's not. So I really upped the pace with, co- and there was co- coverage and Jonathan didn't like the coverage as much as wanting to stay in shots, but I sure. overruled him and won out uh but he wanted to fire-, fire, fire me et cetera and then oh, joe dante and I, I came to the screening and he came up to me afterwards and said, I really like the editing you know have gotten a bad rap you know yeah <laughs> oh, my God. But anyway um
1: why do you think with all you know uh you know as as low budget as it was as as um you know uh um given, you know, all the challenges you faced. And yet it has a, it, it truly is, you know, now everything's a cult film apparently, but this is truly a cult classic. And, you know, is it Sybil? <laughs> you know, Sybil's wardrobe? Or is it uh, John Saxon, you know, hammering it up to Cedar? He you
3: know. gave such class. He was an amazing actor. Yeah. And I, I, I was on set for the last shot. And it's funny because I, I kept arguing the whole time that it's a comedy, you know, that it's funny. And Mm -hmm. Roger resisted that. It was an action movie, you know. And then Roger came to the last shot uh, because he was having, after a dinner party, and I overheard him telling the person who he had dinner with how funny it was and how much of a comedy it was and, Uh you know, (laughs) how much he enjoyed it. So I got that satisfaction. But at one point, uh, Roger George, who has, like, done all the effects and explosions for Roger... Um, he made, and the whole set was the, the state of our ship was the entire stage. The, it, right. the walls of the stage were the walls of the ship. And there mm-hmm. were explosions everywhere. The whole thing was to go up. And there's so much, Roger spent more than he ever has on explosions in that interior. And Roger George, the last minute has to check one thing and something, and, he, and, and, a, and, a, and the set starts to collapse. And he falls through. And Roger says, I wait? And we we're going up against midnight. It has to be done before midnight. Otherwise, he has to pay overtime. And Roger calls out, forget it. It's not in the shot. Keep going. <laughs> 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 but John Jackson was really afraid of the explosions because there it was, it was no stunt double. You know, they yeah, was all yeah. explaining every time he took a step forward, it was exploding behind him behind him. And he was frightened, but he did it. He did it. Yeah. And there was no yeah. second take,
1: right? And there's great character actors. Jeff Corey is in it. Sam Jaffe. Sure. So all these like sort of great sci-fi characters. Sam Jaffe
3: actors. was hysterical as Doctor Hephaestus. You know, it was like Doctor Kildare for me. Yeah,
1: right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I always think yeah. of him
1: from the Asphalt Jungle, and but uh, <laughs> he's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just it's it's wild. And then of course you know George Papard, I mean, when you think you know, he was a heartthrob in, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and a few years later, he'll be starring in The A-Team. And, but he's, you know, got, and he's got
3: such a great... But John Sayles' wrote a role is a cowboy, and they have this in Houston with the, the waitresses having liquor on their belt, so he had his, his belt of liquor, you yeah. know, and <laughs> offering a hot dog with Nestor, who all eat it all at once, and, you know, it's... Uh, and, and he's supposed to be a drunk cowboy, so yeah no trouble. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's so funny. Robert Vaughn literally playing the same role he did in Magnus seven.
3: He was the coolest, but there's one thing. So here, here's the, what I was faced with. So there's Gelt. He plays the character Gelt, which is another John Sales thing with the evil right. greedy guy is called Gelt, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is Jewish for money etc. et cetera, Yeah. Yiddish for money. So, um, um and, um, uh, so there's an explosion in the ship. So it was, and, and it's the smoke that comes out, and he's there in the ship, and he just winces. That's all he does, and that's all I have. And so that's where subliminal editing came came in, and I right. did back and forth with that. But there's one catch to subliminal editing in 35 millimeters that you can't negative cut that. So it all has ah, to be shot optically, right. which means in those days you're one camera shooting off another, and it's expensive. Yeah. But Roger kept going for it, you know? And then I did it in Mutant, I did so many subliminal, so much subliminal editing. And he paid for all that. At, and people, I, people, I was people. doing subliminal editing for um, uh, um, uh, Fitzcarraldo. I was hired to cut the trailer and this was the last thing I did for Roger. And whenever, and, and um, uh, Fitzcarraldo loved the opera and whenever there's a big thing, I do all this subliminal editing and was transition to the next scene. And um, Elliot Slutsky, who came in from the Midwest to head his distribution department, said, we can't have that subliminal editing. It looks like an art film. We really... And I said, well, it is an art film. He said, we have to appeal <laughs> to all the people. I said, that Fitzgerald is not going to appeal to all the people. And I finally, <laughs> I finally won the argument. And I was on my way to the mix, and I get a, 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 a check-in. Roger had asked me to check in on my way there, which I did. It was a pay phone on the Brea and and he says uh, we're not going to do the mix we have to take the sublimo editing out and i gave i just blew up i sold roger he's lost his whole feeling as an artist and he was someone who i totally respected and loved but i i can't love him anymore you know and i quit
2: and I <laughs> on a payphone that you you had to pay to make that call that's the best yep. part <laughs>
1: For, for people who are, you know, younger and watching it for the first time on, like, Amazon Prime or something, they don't know what it was really like. I mean, the, you know, Roger had his little facility in Venice where uh, – and, and James Cameron was uh, making hallways out of McDonald's styrofoam okay, so here, boxes.
3: It's the James Cam, 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 Cam Cameron story, which is in the book. So uh, I'm walking across – I work late all the time, and I'm walking across the stage, and everyone's gone, and walking across the stage was the way out and there was this one guy slumped over. Uh, oh, and what happened just before was that they, we were doing the front screen and Kubrick had done the front screen with 2001 and that was the, the improvement from rear screen so it looked more believable. And front screen, is, the principle is that you put light onto the actors and, and, uh, and, and you project the background, but the, the screen in the background is not visible to the naked eye. But it has all these prisms that put all the light back into the camera lens, so you can see it in the camera. And uh, the French DP, it came out dark. <laughs> and so I, I, ca- I called Roger and got Marianne to you know, disturb him, and, and I said, we have to reshoot. And he said, Alan, make it work, I never reshoot, besides we're going to strike the set. So I I walk across the main stage that night, and it's empty except for this one guy slumped over an A-frame table, and I walk up to him and ask him if he's okay, and it was the guy who did the front screen projection paintings, and he had done three of them, and I looked at them, and they were absolutely exquisite, he said he'd been up for the last three weeks painting them. And, um, and so I, I called Marianne and I said, I've got to talk to Roger. And she said, he's having dinner and he never is supposed to be disturbed during dinner. I won't do it. I said, you have to, they're going to strike the set. I have to talk to him. And so she did and, and I called him and, and, I, and he said, Alan, for the last time, I never reshoot, make it work. And so uh, I said, well, it's this guy's last day, you know and, and uh, you got to hire him and give him a set or something. And and I said, he's just too talented. The paintings are just too good. And he said, okay, what's his name? And I asked him his name, and it's Jim Cameron. And so Roger gave him $12 for the Cayman set. And that's where the A-crates came in as the walls. And he used carnation milk boxes for the floor, and he put steam through it. It was brilliant. Yeah, amazing.
0: I I had a chance to work with uh, uh, Jim Cameron right after Aliens, and uh, at his office in Burbank, um, I was. Uh, he he sent me to look for something, and in one of these storage rooms, on one of the lower shelves, there was Nell.
3: The really, ship.
0: it was. It, yeah, man. it was there. I I, I saw it. I went, oh Don't forget gosh. that the ship with. And, with, the and ship not with, only that, the, if you the, turn Nell the mother
2: ship. this way, it's a uterus. Well, that's true. That's You're true. kidding. I never yeah. knew that. No. Yeah. Just look at it from the top.
3: The arms, there's the fallopian tubes
2: up. and the ovaries yeah. and the whole nine. That,
0: that Jim, oh. designed. <laughs> Jim designed.
3: Jim oh, designed. Okay. The, the, the Skotechs have, Rob and Dennis Skotek, yep, Rob and Dennis Skotech have an interview at the end of the book. And um, they said that Jim took forever. to. He was the slowest person and he was working on that ship for months. And they yep. kept him in the corner, and he was just working and working and working. But it's it's brilliant. You know, it's uh, Absol- it's the absolutely. mothership.
2: <laughs> I <right. laughs> I didn't realize it when I was a kid watching the movie. Okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying that. But honestly, like, the thing that I loved most about that movie when I was a kid was I loved the relationship between Nell and Richard Thomas? I thought that was the best thing. Like, I loved Nell. Like, I would play, you know, uh, just, you know, Starship, whatever, like, out in the yard with my friends. I always wanted to do, like, Battle Beyond the Stars. Like, and I, like, always wanted to pilot Nell. Little did I know um, what she was. But, uh, <laughs> but she was just fantastic. And what a great character. What a great ship as character. Um, I, I think she kind of she's like the you know she's like the rug in the Big Lebowski she ties the whole room.
3: Yeah, there there was a thing at the end where they didn't really have enough shots because it, it wasn't digital it wasn't tape it was on film, yeah. and uh, you know so you, I needed more shots of just the li- of yeah. Nell the, the light going on and off of her t- t- talking, and I just kept begging the, the DP to shoot me more shots and he fi- finally did so I could really involve her as a ca- character. I needed that blinking light for, for her speaking.
1: And Richard and Thomas. Anybody, than...
3: Richard Thomas didn't like the editing either. You complained about it. Mm. Mm. I, I had to put up with wow. every obstacle. You name it. Yeah. We didn't like your acting either, Richard. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we called him John Boy in Space. You know. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he had this well, big birthmark, you know, like, do they have that in the future? Yeah. future? Yeah. <laughs> no, really I actually was shocked
1: in Homeland how good yeah. he was, because all I remembered, I didn't watch the Waltons, so all I remember was from Battle Beyond the Stars how boring he was and uh, and then when he was in Homeland, I'm like, wow, he can act he's really good Who knew Well, he? he had to be um, a virgin
3: you know, he, he pulled off the virgin part, you know, yeah. it was good he was good, and okay. He had yeah, to be this, did did. you know, every man helping out the planet. You know,
1: I he he was good. I, I liked it. So there were never more than what a hundred prints, because Roger what Roger would do is play the drive-ins, and that was a lot for him. And he would bicycle was, you know, prints around it, the
3: country. I I think it was two to three hundred prints, and they
1: would tour. Which is which was huge for him, because he would never yeah. make that many prints. Well, and. And and a big marketing campaign for again for Roger was a big marketing campaign.
3: Well it was it was co it was co produced with Orion. And it was so it was a you know, I believe it was a five million dollar movie, or maybe it was six, and then Ryan put up three and Roger supposedly put up three. Right. But he took Orion's three and bought the studio with it. Right. Right. And then he sold it. Uh, years later, for 20 million, and he said, I should buy another studio and do do it yeah, again. Right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> with someone else's money.
0: Yeah. Well, and he, 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 and he, he, he old did old. the same
3: thing with um, um, the next movie, Galaxy of Terror. Galaxy of Terror, right. It, yeah. And and that was with TriStar, I believe. And then everyone caught on. So by the time it came came to my movie it was Roger's money. So my movie was budgeted at six hundred thousand, not two and a half million or three million.
0: <laughs> now is it is it true is it true that uh, Galaxy of Terror was shot at night during half of the uh uh half of the production of uh, Battle Beyond the Stars on the no, same sets? No.
3: No. Okay. So if I could no well, then
0: it, we've been lied uh, to absolutely
3: not.
1: Because Star Wars was his attempt to do... Because Roger asked me
3: eight times to cut Galaxy of Terror. And I said, Roger, I've done everything I could for you as an editor. I want to direct. And he finally said, can you stutter and direct? And I said, well, I do stutter when I'm directing, but but it's less because I'm in charge. But I do stutter, but it's in the act of communicating, which is more than most directors do. And he said, you have a point there, Alan, and I'm going to put you through the line. <laughs> <ride." laughs> <laughs> so Just I had a call with was... Friday to see if he had an assignment. And, uh, you know, I didn't stutter when I was drunk. So I, I had a bottle of wine, and I called him at 2, and he would call me back at 5. And I was drunk by that time, and all I had to do was say, hi, Roger, do you have anything for me? And he'd go, no, and i say, thanks. <laughs> 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 in the grand and finally, tradition of Hollywood yeah yeah.
1: Well, what was I saying you know um, Battle Beyond the Stars was his attempt to do Star Wars the Galaxy of Terror was his attempt to rip off Alien yeah. then when he greenlit Mutant Forbidden Planet yeah, it's a wonderful story because it didn't begin as an Alien
3: ripoff it began as something very different no it began as a version of Lawrence of Arabia in space and Sure. He, he took, me, <laughs> took me for a walk around the studio after I'd finished the Kung Fu movie. And he said, Alan, you want to direct the whole movie, don't, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, there's a ga- Galaxy of Terror has this, Jim Cameron did the art direction. And the spaceship, which was brilliant, was available for one day. It was, it was shooting Monday through Friday, first unit. Second unit was shooting Saturday. Monday, Sunday, it was free. And Monday, it was redressed for a burnt set. So he came to me on a Tuesday and and he said, uh, you have, you know, five days to, you know, four days to to write, direct and produce uh, a seven to seven to eight minute opening of a space movie that can go anywhere. And he said, if you need any, and I have an astronaut and a robot, I owe Jesse Ben a movie and uh, Don Olivera came into my office with a robot suit and he'll be in it. And so I'll give you an astronaut and a robot, and if you need any inspiration, I've always wanted to do a version of Lawrence of Arabia in space. <laughs> and, I, and, I said, and I said, David Lean's my favorite director. He said, well then, you should have no problem at all.
2: <laughs> oh, if it's, it's, it forbidden world i mean and by the way i i have so many it's nice things here. to say to you about forbidden world but if like if it's lawrence of arabia it's as though lawrence of arabia is just the turkish prison you know what i mean it's just it's just you're just in one place and just no,
3: well it, it, the planet's name is exarbia okay and they do go out in the desert yes you know, they do they do and so, but what happened, I gave him treatments based on Lawrence of Arabia, all which he, which he said were too expensive, and then he said, I want to yes. rip off Alien. And Jim Minorski, Jim Minorski and R.J. Robertson had come to him with a story based on Attack of the Crab Monsters, which was based on the thing, which is what Alien is based on. So they basically gave Roger his own story, and that's what he wanted to do. But Roger came up with the idea to kill the camp, to kill the mutant with cancer which is a brilliant idea
2: totally agreed like i you know that that moment just i think elevated that movie incredibly for me in fact there's a lot of things in the in the third act that i thought just kind of took that whole film to its own level and made it very different from alien i mean number one just the attempt to reason with it um and then you know, the, which obviously didn't go the way that everybody planned. But that there was something kind of cool about that. You she know, and then it was like plugged in. And, yeah, I'm sorry? She texted with a mutant. She totally texted with a mutant. And then it just, it just took a very dark turn. Yeah. You know? It's like when the alien extends its proboscis towards your robe, it is time to get out of the room. Um, but the whole thing with the doctor... And just he's got cancer and it's like it'll kill it. It weirdly made sense. Like in the it, Trust me, oh my, god. my
3: cancer will kill the mutant. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm with you. Because for whatever reason, like I think that that actor was actually really good and like he had this, this credibility. Oh my yeah, god, he, he felt was so a, he,
3: actually he was smart. Man. Yeah, I love Repo Man and he was the oh, yeah, the yeah, craziest one yeah. Repo Man. So I he was my first choice for that. By far. Oh, my God. And the, and he never did the same scene? thing twice. He never did the same thing twice. It was amazing to work with him. He was great.
1: But that was a frustrating experience for you in the sense that you wanted it to be more comedic. And Roger was—you know, always found comedy anathema. And he wanted more June Chadwick in the shower and less comedy. But you did kind of get the last laugh because your version of Mutant is on the, um, the Shout Factory Blu-ray.
3: Yeah, I, I believe me. I wanted June Chadwick in the shower too. That's not Roger. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, you, you can make Roger happy with sex and action. I knew that right on. And, but that, the actual first idea I had, you know, once he told me Lawrence of Arabia, my first idea was a laser beam shower for the women. So you know, that's where. That's I,
2: what I think about when I think about. women. me, you know,
3: and and uh, and uh, this fight because. I promised a woman a closed set, and I did my bet, and we had flats that were made, so we were you know, surrounded by closed flats, and the only people on the set were the DP, the assistant camera, and, uh, and the people. We had to do some spritz on the sides that we would enhance with laser beams, but there had to be some water you know, going on. Yeah. And uh, after we did all the takes, and I admittedly did one take that I, extra that I didn't need, but it was a close-up, and I, I was just too close. I knew I would never be there again in life, so I <laughs> did it. I walked out oh to check God. to check with the sound people just to make sure everything was okay. And it, it, at every corner were the where the flats were the guys in the crew stacked on top of each other looking through the slats.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: Oh, my <laughs> God. The oh, incorrigible crew. They're human. They're
0: boys.
2: <laughs> but life was um, in,
1: in the Roger Corman uh, University.
3: <laughs> I'll tell you what
1: else was awesome. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: No, the theme of rape was really important to me, and that's in all my movies and everything I, everything I did in the theater. And I didn't discover why until much later, until I wrote my first novel, So, uh, I, which, uh, which I did before working for Roger on battle because I was – I had written this erotic th- roller skating thriller that Erwin Yulon's played with and toyed with for a year, and then he went off and made Roller Boogie. So I was devastated, and I dropped out of film, and I got a construction job, and I wrote. And I was frustrated with my stuttering because I couldn't make calls myself. I had to always have someone else do it, so I couldn't even mm-hmm. fight my own battles, and uh, and my stuttering really hadn't improved, and I couldn't figure out why I stuttered, because my parents told me a story, my mother told me a story that I couldn't believe, which is that, that on the day my baby brother was born, when I was six, I was so overwhelmed with joy that I didn't know what to say, so my vocal cords became paralyzed, and after two weeks, I had a severe stutter. Wow. So, I, but I, I, I couldn't be near any man with thick, hairy hands, in my whole life, I would get these weird chills where my whole body would go, and it would just happen. Wow. You know, it wasn't emotional. I would just, you know, stay away. And I stayed away from older yeah. men. I couldn't, you know, like I never could talk with my father, always talk to my mother, etc. cetera. Mm. Uh, my mother always talked, and I, and I listened. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, but I couldn't figure out why. And uh, and everything I was doing was about rape. I and mean, even in my spare time, I was reading books about rape. And then I put together everything, I, uh, all the the. The I wrote. I was trying to be Kirk Vonnegut, and I was writing a novel and, a doc, and a, an autobiography at the same time, and, and a fictional, in a future, whatever. I was, but I was wanting to keep every sexual thought I ever had and experience along with it, and to try to understand my relationship with rape and sex, and because I, I I didn't want to rape anybody. But people thought, why are you looking at all these rape books? And then I put together what I, the memories I had of you know rain and and, and thick hairy hands and, and, uh, and a bath. And I remembered my uncle being there as the babysitter who molested me. Uh, and um, so I, I got to that point, and that's when I came to work on Battle. So by the time I got to Mutant, I really wanted to express you know the the the. The horror of rape, and I did that with June and the tail going yeah.
0: up her and so wow, yeah it's a
2: truly shocking scene and I think that the one of the things that makes it so shocking is for a second there you fooled me um like i I thought that plan might work um, and at least in some kind of just weird like all right so you know this is this isn't this isn't what i i thought kind of way and and then obviously it, it all does go horribly wrong but but not in a way that suddenly makes the movie feel like it's it's still by the numbers because the the play that remains is eat the cancer which is amazing just so amazing um you know the other thing that i i just find just incredibly cool about that film. I have no idea like how you achieved it on like you know, I mean, what was your your budget on the movie? you said it was like five hundred thousand dollars to like do the well, whole thing?
3: I think that was uh, Roger said six, but it felt like five.
2: so it's a it's a Roger Six. <laughs> right. and um you know the the dissolution of the characters into that that protein mass. Right. Especially like the doctor, like when he's just sort of like half a man and he's just kind of, there is, there's something about the makeup effects, um, that it, there's a world where it, it could feel like it's, um, like, it's like, you just wouldn't believe it. Right. Like it would feel like makeup, but there's something about it. Um, and the, the way that you handled it, that it felt very alive and unsettling. And the, the closest analog I can come up with is, um, and it's not quite this, but in RoboCop, when the dude gets covered in toxic waste and then he is falling apart. But, like, the way that that, that movie handles those guys falling apart and turning into pure protein, and it just, it, it's it's really, like, it's it's spooky like in a, in a <laughs> great way you know it's mysterious and it's kooky no, it's it's but no it's it's fantastic i mean how did you how did you pull that off with like with no time and no money
3: john john Beekler was a total hero on it and so so was steve, steve neil i mean people were yeah uh, and steve neil by the way did did the mutants and and uh all the mutants and um uh, the Scotex helped with stage four, but he did one, two, and three, and and the sculpting in stage four. And Steve Neal also did the all of Spock's ears for the show for motion and, picture in um, yeah. the second series. I don't know if you've interviewed, him. but John and Steve they just worked. They were they were getting their break. They loved the the opportunity, and they wanted to be. This was their chance to shine, and the slime. Uh, was methyl cellulose, which is the main ingredient in toothpaste, yeah. and we got it from Long Beach in barrels, and uh, we could hardly, you, when you shot with it, you know, you, it, it was, the floor became slippery, so we couldn't really do take too often, because we had it you know, it just would take too long, so it was, slime was the main thing, and I wanted to use slime as the point of view, and we dropped slime down, and Right. You know, the subtext for the mutant was that he was going through pu- puberty rather quickly. So, <laughs> By the way,
2: speaking of the slime and shooting through it, that shot where Tracy is yeah, you know, getting undressed and the slime is dripping down and you're shooting through it, that is such a fantastic shot. That, I mean, that is helped. just a delightful it moment.
3: It took forever to get the camera up that high, you know, to shoot it above. And that was just a great in front of it, but yeah, it was timed perfectly with the, just as she's naked, it comes over, you know.
2: (laughs) It was amazing.
3: (laughs) Well, and she was a, Uh... Dawn Dawn, Dun Dunlap. I mean, I we had an actress before her, um, and uh, her boy, she got a McDonald's commercial. So suddenly the nudity was out, and I said she has to have nudity, and uh, the boyfriend said if she has to be nude, she's going to quit. And I said, she has to be nude. And so she quit. And so, you know, it was really tough within a day to find another actress, uh, and uh, especially for a Corman film, to be naked. Right. And we couldn't find anybody, finally. And this one woman came in, and Roger sent in. It was a Playboy bunny who looked 10 years older. And, you know, huge body, et cetera. You know, and it was like, Roger, she doesn't fit. It's totally wrong. She's too old. And Roger said... We're out of time. We got to start shooting and, uh, you know, have her put her have, have her put her hair in pigtails because the first time we see her was pigtails and our oppression will be young. And I was just so depressed. So I begged and pleaded for another ca- casting day. And and the last minute before we were ending in walks, done, 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 and I was just overwhelmed with joy. And I said, Roger, I found her. And he said, sorry, we've already sent the papers to the other one. <laughs> and I talked to Paul I'm in the boy and I said, "I will not deal with that. It has to be this woman." And he argued with me for a couple hours. It was just intense. Oh, and then awesome. he said, "If this if this show doesn't not hit, it's going to be on your shoulders." You know, so I said, "Fine." You know. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my god!
1: Well, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, you know, speaking. We're all video drum fans, and of course, you worked with Deborah Harry on uh, *Intimate Stranger* as
3: well. Wasn't she sweet? You know yeah. the end of that, the the beginning of that song film, and in the end she sings two, Janis Joplin songs, that are really cool. Uh, she was just w- wonderful to work with. I loved it. And I had a that was a big argument because to for distribution, she didn't mean enough money, but we couldn't yeah. find another actress with a name, to be. It was originally called Phone Sex, Intimate Stranger, mm-hmm. and uh, Phone Sex was hip at that time. That was just starting out, so it was. It was like roller skating, you know, it was at the wave when it happened. Right, <laughs> but I was just delighted to have her, and uh, she was just great.
1: Well, I'll, you have such great, great stories, and so many that we didn't get to today. But you can read about it in *Celluloid Wars*, which is your book about the making of *Battle Beyond the Stars*. And when does *The Forbidden, plat, forbidden Planet*? The Forbidden, forbidden World? world. Forbidden never. World. When I does it, *The Forbidden well, World* end
3: I, I, I didn't tell, tell you the story about Roger when Roger punched the guy in the theater and changed the title from The *Forbidden World*. And the first thing I said to him was, "Roger, they're going to get that mixed up with *Forbidden Planet*." And he said, oh, that happened 20 years ago. No one will ever remember it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And here we are, 40 years later, and I'm still getting confused.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but I I never feel alone because I have a Google search, you know, know, hit that anytime Forbidden World is mentioned, I get a notice. And it's always Forbidden Planet. (laughs) <laughs> oh, nice. oh, uh, except for once, last year, a few months ago, or last year, um, at the beginning of the year, there's a Forbidden Worlds Film Festival in England that's named after Forbidden World. It's an '80s film festival. 80s oh, film. nice! You know, when, when, when does fail. the new? When do, but you, when you does can the buy my book on Amazon. It's the only place okay. to get it. It's not a bookstore. It's only on Amazon.
1: Great. Well, it's, it's probably okay, because there aren't any bookstores. There is only Amazon these days. So, uh, and Zool. There's and Zool, also and Zool. Zool. Well, Al, this was great. It was great having you uh, on the show. And such great stories about, you know, at the time living it, you didn't appreciate it. But now you look back and you think how, you know, with the industry, this is the industry that we love and we remember. And it's, you know, it's changed so much. And the the joyfulness and the kitschiness and all this you know, it's all gone away and replaced by algorithms
3: and, you know... Uh, yeah, but now everybody can make a movie, you know. It doesn't Everyone stop can make you. a movie. Everybody
0: that is Everyone has the tools to make a movie. Whether or not they have the ability to is another question.
3: Sure, but you can shoot. <laughs> and, and edit it and, you can and finish it. it yeah. and, you know, but that's, yeah. that's the miracle. In, in those days, you couldn't do anything by yourself. You had to have... Yeah had to be hired yeah. you know, the, someone had to pay for the, the film barrier
1: and, to entry was yeah. quite high and now everybody I, can and they're the I star think, of their own movie
0: i think that was a good thing for quality though i mean even even at the at the lower levels
1: mm-hmm. uh
0: it that's a good thing to make it hard to do because that makes you have to focus more on what the job is and how to get it done uh, as sure plus can.
3: plus shooting without being able to see it yeah. playback, you know, yeah. not having playback, you had to guess at what was going to be good and to, work.
1: You have to commit, commit to your decisions. Yeah. And, and, and so, Andre, yeah. you didn't get dailies yeah. the next day either. You would get dailies. It was a couple of days
3: before you'd see dailies, right? Oh, but that was right. the other thing. We really, only, we never saw dailies with sound. The crew would always wow. see it without sound and no one knew how the acting was. Only I knew it, you know, that was right. the drag, you know. Goodness, unbelievable! <laughs> well,
1: so anyway, thank you, Alan, and thank you, thank everyone, you so for joining us for another episode. And uh, if uh, you want to find out what's happening on the upcoming episodes in Glorious Trek or Inglorious Trek Experts, on Instagram. And we'll be back uh, next week with an all-new episode of Inglorious Trek Experts. And Deck uh, seven, seventy-eight the following week. seventy-eight. Yeah, sure, yeah, why not? There you go. So, uh, on behalf of myself, Mark Altman, Ashley Miller, and Darren Doctorman, we'll see you next time here on Deck seventy-eight.
0: Deck 78 is an exclusive podcast from Trexperts Plus.